0: You let me know when we're ready. Uh, some of you asked uh, when I came this morning, are we going to you know, continue in First Timothy as we've been doing? And I said, no, uh, we're going to do uh, sort of a, another Easter message, even though this is a week after Easter, um, because uh, something provoked me <laughs> this past week. Um, there's a phenomenon that seems to me happens every Easter. Uh, One is uh, people who don't usually go to church, they will on Easter go to church. These are what we might call first-time long-timers. Maybe they believe, maybe they don't, um, but they find it uh, perhaps a custom to go to a church uh, for Easter. And so you would think this would be the perfect time for pastors everywhere to just give the basic, basic, basic message message of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Because all these newcomers are coming to church for the first time, maybe the one time ever that year, and perfect opportunity to give them the gospel. Straightforward. And yet, each Easter, pastors who year after year have to preach an Easter sermon uh, find themselves wanting to invent new ways to to package the, the Easter message, uh, find new ways, invent new methods of talking about it to, to, to attract uh, the masses. This creates a very odd contradiction, doesn't it? On the one hand, you have people who've never heard the gospel coming to church, but then on the other hand, you have these pastors and preachers who want to reinvent and revise the, the Easter message. A month ago, uh, there was this article in Christianity Today called Six Ways to Celebrate Easter This Year. Okay, Six Ways to Celebrate Easter This Year. This is how the article began. Easter is a favorite holiday for many because it celebrates Jesus' resurrection on the cross and the new life he gave because of his sacrifice. But, but, sometimes we get stuck in old habits and celebrate Easter in the same way each year. Well, there's nothing wrong with this, you might want to try something different to make your Easter celebration more memorable. And then it goes on to list six different ways for us to celebrate Easter. Let's take a guess. How many of those six ways help us to remember or commemorate Jesus' death and resurrection. Zero. This is an opportunity lost, right? Again, you have all these people who've never, maybe have never heard that message, that glorious message of resurrection coming to church. And, that, and, and all we can seem to do is to try to reinvent things, reinvent the wheel. Um, And we don't give them the message that they want to hear, that they need to hear. Today's text, while this is not a traditional Easter text, it does talk about the resurrection. Specifically, it shows how Paul, while he's uh, debating theology with these philosophers in Athens, Uh, he actually gets their interest. He piques their interest and he actually gets a few converts. Uh, The the Bible actually mentions not a few converts, not just a few, but several converts. But I think very interestingly, Paul piques their interest when he talks about the resurrection. In fact, it's the only time in this debate with philosophers that Paul is actually able to get some attention is when he talks about the resurrection. Why? Like we read the sermon, Paul talks about many things, right? And in seminaries and churches and theologians, when they write about Acts 17, we'll talk about many things. But why is it at the moment that Paul mentions the resurrection? Why is it that at that moment, Those Athenian philosophers' years are turned. Of course, some mocked, some resisted, but others believed. Why? What is it about the resurrection that draws even the interest of thinkers and philosophers, atheists, hardened atheists? Why is the resurrection important for them? And then, of course, why is it important for us? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll just do uh, two basic points. First, we'll uh, summarize and look at Paul's sermon. okay, And then we'll talk about uh, the, the Athenians' response to Paul's sermon. Okay, So first, let's talk about Paul's sermon. Usually, this is a text that seminaries and churches and theologians use to teach apologetics. Uh, apologetics means a defense of our faith, coming from the Greek word apologia, which means a defense. Okay, uh, so we'll use this text. In fact, in my seminary, when I took introduction to apologetics, the very first class was on Acts 17. And the professor dissected it and told us, oh, these were the methods that Paul used to defend the faith, and these are the methods that you should use to to defend your faith with. Usually, this text is a text about apologetics. Uh, Today, uh, we're not going to go through every single point that this text raises about apologetics. We'll, We'll bring up a few points, but we will try to answer just one simple question from this text. Why? Why was it that the Athenians were moved when Paul talked about the resurrection. Why? I mean, Paul makes very good arguments about the Christian faith throughout his sermon in Acts 17. But why was it when he mentions the resurrection that the people were moved? Okay? So let's talk about Paul's sermon. Uh, I'll just make a few points. The first point, uh, the audience was mostly philosophers. Okay, if you look in your Bibles at Verse 18, Acts 17, verse 18, the Bible says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those were the two major schools of philosophy that were around uh, at that time in the Roman Empire. Uh, This is very different from Paul's usual audience. Uh, We remember from studying the book of Acts that Paul usually, when he goes to a new city, he usually starts to preach at a synagogue, right? Or to uh, Bible-believing Jews and Gentiles. He starts in those places. People that are, maybe they've heard the word of God before. Maybe they're interested in the word of God. That's why they're going to a synagogue in the first place. Uh, sometimes out of the synagogue, they get run out, but they go to a house that's next door, and Paul continues to teach. But these are people who are going because they want to hear something about God's word, or they've already heard things about God's word, and they need Paul to kind of clarify for them, you know, um, you know, you guys have been baptized with the baptism of John. I'm going to tell you about the baptism of the of the Messiah, right? So these are people, usually Paul is talking to people who have Some interest in God's word. Not so here. Okay, these are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are people who have their own school of thought, uh, their own way of looking at the world, their own worldview, a worldview which doesn't have God, right? Epicureans believed that the world was just made of matter, atoms. We are not living beings. We're just atoms and matter that just interact with each other. You know, we don't really have a soul or a spirit. It's just brain synapses that fire and we're just chemical reactions. Those were the Epicureans. Uh, Stoics believed that any sort of thinking that wasn't rational thinking, including religion, including um, things that you can't explain by reason was irrational so stoics believed you know in 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 reason as the most important thing so so this was a skeptical audience this was an audience that truly deep down inside uh, they were staunch atheists not only were these uh you might call it a, a difficult audience not only were they a difficult audience, uh, the text actually mentions how they came to listen to Paul and they were already preparing themselves to defend themselves against Paul. Uh, they, they were kind of inoculating themselves against Paul's message before he preached the message. Okay? In verse 18, some already called Paul a babbler. Meaning, okay, we're already going to dismiss anything he says because he's just babbling. Others called him a proclaimer of foreign gods. Meaning, okay, we're going to listen to him, but this is a Jewish guy from over there. So we're just going to listen to him and be nice to him and hear something different from another culture. But we have our own culture and we have our own worldview that we're going to hold on to. And then verse 19, others said, well, this is a teacher of a new doctrine. Meaning... Okay, he's going to tell us something, but we have our own doctrines that we're going to hold on to and we're not going to move from this. And we're only just going to entertain this new doctrine for a little bit. Okay, so these people have, even before hearing a word, Paul has to say they've inoculated themselves against the message. Uh, Romans one verse 18 tells us. That sinful man. We all know the truth about God, right? We all know the truth about God, whether we've had a Bible or not, because God shows us his invisible qualities through creation. And all of us suppress that truth in our hearts. That's what Romans 1.18 says. We all suppress, suppress the truth of God in our hearts. This is what's happening at the Areopagus. Before Paul speaks a word, the Athenians are preparing themselves they're girding themselves up to suppress the truth of god's word and then in that atmosphere god uh, paul begins to systematically break down their worldview. Uh, we mentioned that among the crowd were epicureans these are the materialists the modern day materialists of their of, of their time people that believed everything in the world was just made of physical atoms and materials, and there was nothing deeper than that. Well, Paul actually, in his message, he he takes a chisel and he chips away, he hammers away systematically at the foundation of the Epicurean worldview. He doesn't give them any wiggle room. He He's unrelenting. He doesn't leave them any room to say, well, your worldview is okay. Paul takes a Paul takes God's word and he breaks down every part of the Epicurean worldview. Okay, look at this. In verse 24, Paul says, God made everything. Meaning all of the material that you guys think make up the world. Well, that's fine and good, but there's a creator of that material bigger than your worldview. God made the world and everything in it. Verse 25. God gives life and breath to all things. Meaning, in your worldview, everything is just made of materials that are kind of combined together. But it's God that gives this material life and breath and spirit and soul. Verse 26, Paul says, it's God who gives design and purpose to all things. Right, he, he, he set the boundaries of all the different places. He, he set the times for all the different things that he created. He gives purpose and design to all things. Meaning, the world isn't just made of random material floating around and interacting with each other. There's purpose. There's a designer. There's a creator that gives meaning and life and design to all things. And then verse 29. God cannot be worshipped through idols, meaning since God is the creator of material, since God is over material, since God gives material life and purpose and design, you can't fashion an idol out of material and say that's God. In fact, that's insulting to God. Basically, that's what Paul's saying. right? God cannot be worshipped through idols. Now think about this. And I'm, I know I'm talking to a, a room full of people who you've done evangelism, right? I'm certain you've been in debates, if you want to call it that, maybe arguments, heated debates with a staunch atheist. I'm not talking about people who have some receptiveness to God's word. I'm talking about people who have their worldview. They're set in that. And maybe they will entertain you because you're from some other culture or you're from some other new doctrine and they'll entertain you for a little bit. But what happens when you start to chip away at their worldview? What happens? You get through the whole presentation. No. Right. They'll start to argue. Right. And they'll start to push back. No, God didn't make the world. God doesn't give breath and life to all things. God doesn't give design and purpose to all things. Right. They'll start to push back. And yet, if you notice in our text, even as Paul systematically chisels away at the Athenians' worldview, they don't react to him until he mentions the resurrection. They actually let him get through his whole presentation. But then when Paul mentions that forbidden word, resurrection, then that's when the Athenians lose their minds right some call some begin to mock paul but others are moved and they actually their interest is piqued these hardcore atheists now imagine that right wouldn't we want to know that 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 strategy how to make an atheist interested in the gospel right and here Paul's done it they're interested let's Have you come back and let's hear again what you have to say. Why was it the resurrection? What is it about the resurrection that these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers wanted to hear Paul again? So let's talk about that. The reaction of the Athenians. In order for us to understand why the Athenians reacted this way, uh, we need to understand a little bit just a little bit. I'm not going to go into too deep of a detail, okay? We're just going to need to understand a little bit more about their schools of philosophy, all right? And we're going to do this by using one illustration, one example. Um, during that time, actually, this was a guy who was a contemporary of Jesus and Paul, born around the same century, or born in the same century, even though he never met Jesus or Paul. Okay, there was a guy in the Roman Empire named Seneca. Seneca was a Renaissance man at that time. He was a very powerful, a very influential man. Uh, He's to the Roman Empire. He was kind of like our Thomas Paine or our Benjamin Franklin. Um, He was a statesman. He was a philosopher. He was an orator. He was a poet. He was a playwright. He was even a tutor to the emperors, to the emperor's children. Uh, in fact, one of Seneca's, tu- uh, Seneca's um, protégés was Nero, who eventually becomes emperor, okay? That Nero. Seneca was his tutor, okay? So Seneca was like the Benjamin Franklin of that time. We mentioned he wrote plays. Uh, one of the plays that Seneca wrote was a play called Phaedra. Now, one thing you'll have to know about Seneca is he's a Stoic philosopher. And so when he writes plays, he's, u- he's not just writing entertainment. He's using that to teach Stoic philosophy, right? You know how people do, right? They, they write something, but really they're trying to make moral lessons and teach uh, teachings about what they believe in. So he's writing plays that teach Stoicism. One of these plays was a play called Phaedra. I'm just going to give you a very two-minute brief synopsis of Phaedra. Um, Phaedra was the queen of Athens. She was the wife of the king, Theseus. Now, Theseus had a son from a prior marriage called Hippolytus. And so Theseus was the king. Hippolytus was Theseus' son. And Phaedra was the stepmother of Hippolytus. Now, you got to put yourself in the mind frame of, okay, this is, you know, Stoic teaching, but it's also entertainment, all right? People would go to the theater to to watch this play, okay? Hippolytus was a handsome young man. One day, when Theseus was away, Phaedra tries to seduce him. She fails. Hippolytus flees. But as he's fleeing, he leaves behind his sword. Phaedra, who's covered in shame... When the king returns, she lies to King Theseus and says, it was Hippolytus who tried to rape me. Theseus, who is enraged, prays to the Roman god Neptune to punish Hippolytus. And so the Roman god Neptune actually does punish Hippolytus. He takes Hippolytus's body and he tears it to thread, uh, shreds. Theseus, who did not intend his prayer to actually come to fruition, finds out that his son is dead. And more than that, he can't retrieve his body because his body parts are scattered all over the kingdom. And so he's devastated by the death of his son. Phaedra, now overcome by guilt, confesses to the king, I lied. And so she kills herself. And so the play ends with Theseus distraught over the death of his wife and his son. Now, why do we bring this up? Well, throughout the play, as I said, Seneca is a Stoic philosopher. He interjects parts of Stoic teaching here and there, right? In this situation, they should have done this. In this situation, he should have done that. The only time when Seneca has nothing to say in his play is at the end. When King Theseus is devastated by the death of his son and his wife. Actually, the play ends with Theseus trying the rest of his life to go throughout the kingdom to try to find the body parts of his son. Like like that's, that's all he could come up with. That's all the best of Stoic philosophy could come up with. As our hope and comfort in death, there is none. There is none. Why do we bring this up? The best of philosophy, right? The best of Roman philosophy at that time had nothing to say about death, there was no hope. There's no moral lesson to learn about that. That's it. That's, that's it. You're Theseus. You just have to deal with it. It's not a very good way to deal with it. That is why when Paul brings up the resurrection, let's look at verse 32 again. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, you know, their defense mechanisms are still working. While others said, Let's hear you again on this matter. Remember, so far in Paul's sermon, there's plenty of things for the Athenians to get upset about, right? He's chiseled away at their philosophy, you know, at their worldview, but they have no reaction. It's only when Paul starts to talk about the resurrection. That by the grace of the Holy Spirit, some they mocked, but others were interested. Why? Because these people had no answers for death. Nobody has an answer for death. Nobody's smart. The world has no answers for death. No, no worldview has answers for death. The only answer for death is found in our Scripture, right? Jesus. In Christ who overcame death who was raised from the dead and now gives that to us as a free gift You know not even the other Now on the way over I was thinking maybe the other monotheistic religions Have an answer for death right Jewish Judaism has some sort of afterlife and so does Islam right afterlife in the heavens with 70 virgins, right? But it's only the Christian message that says, this is a free gift. You don't have to work for it. Right? Because at the end of Judaism and Islam, all you're left with is, have I done enough to inherit eternal life? Even Buddhism has some sort of eternal life. Right? But it's, have you done enough to reach the seven levels of whatever? Only ours gives the answer that this is a free gift can't earn it. It's a free gift. Uh, In our Bible reading, we read Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is that famous psalm that Peter quotes in his sermon in Acts 2, where it talks about the Messiah, how even in death, his flesh, God did not let him go into corruption. Uh, If you open your Bibles Look at the very first part of Psalm 16. There should be a little inscription. It says "Amiktom of David." "Amiktom of David." Does your Bibles say that? A miktam of David." Yeah, yeah. Okay. We don't know. We don't quite know what a miktam means. Okay. We think it means something precious. However, even today in Jewish, uh, in Jewish synagogues and schools. Psalm 16 is used at a person's funeral. Psalm 16 is a funeral psalm because the first line says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I trust. That preserve me is a preserve me in death. It's not a preserve me from enemies. It's a preserve me in death. It's a funeral psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. But listen to what Listen to what the the rest of Psalm 16 says. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. Remember, this is a funeral psalm, right? Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is death. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You know, Psalm 16 is 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 a cry of hope, saying that our lives, even in death, are in God's hand. So you will not leave my soul in death, nor will you let me see corruption. But of course, we know the ultimate fulfilling of Psalm 16 was in Christ, who did it first, who overcame death first as the Holy One. But now we get that gift as well, right, of the resurrection. Isaiah 53. uh, That we know is about the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, and what he would come to do. It's very interesting to me that uh, Isaiah 53 is often called the suffering servant. And, you know, most of the, you know, most of the chapter is pretty sad. Mm -hmm. Except for these verses, 10 to 12 right yet it pleased the lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed there is a hint that death is not going to hold him down that there, there is an after death there is a you know he's going to do more things after death a resurrection he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, even in Isaiah 53, a a prophecy about our Lord Jesus, there is a hint of resurrection. Of course, we talked about Jesus' own words in John 14, right? Let your heart not be troubled, Right. right? Because I go and prepare a place for you. There, Jesus actually mentions. Not only his resurrection, but ours. His resurrection. I will go. Right? That John 14 occurs during the Last Supper when, when Jesus is trying to teach them about his death. Right? A little longer, I will not be with you, but I will send a helper to, to help you, right? That's that's that night. And yet Jesus mentions his resurrection. I will go and prepare a place for you, and you will go. And be with me in my father's house you know, this is personal, and this is why it provoked me uh, you know this this past Easter. You know I fear death. might be surprising. I fear death. Um, I think it might it might be actually true for you. I don't fear my death. I fear my loved one's death. Now, when when you talk about things that might happen to me, I'm like, okay, I'll be with Jesus, right? No, I don't fear that as much. I fear the death of my loved ones. I don't want to be away from them. I remember as a child, I feared the death of my mom and dad. What if I'm at school one day and they call me into the principal's office and they've been in a car crash? What am I going to do? After I got married, I started to fear the death of my wife. And now that I have a son, I fear his death. I don't want that phone call. And, uh, you know, I'm preaching and I'm a Christian and I believe. I still don't want that phone call. I fear their death. For me, what helps me not fall over the cliff of fear and sadness is the hope that we will be together, that there is resurrection. Uh, Karen, uh, I think on your Facebook, I think last week you posted something about the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day One, which says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My life is not my own. It's God's. But then my parents' lives are not their own. They're not my life. They're God's. I get to enjoy them for a time, but their life is God's, right? And God can do whatever He wants to do with their life. Same thing with my wife. I get to enjoy her for a time. She doesn't belong to me in that sense, right? Same thing with my son, right? He's my son, but God only, his life belongs to God. And I get to enjoy that for however long God wants me to to enjoy it, right? But his life is God's. But that's also comforting to know that his life is God's. And even if it was not in this world, his life is still in God's hand. And one day, we will be together because of resurrection. Now, I know relationships are different, as Jesus said, right? My wife and I, we're not going to be married in heaven. We're going to be angels. And my son and I, we're not going to be father and son. We're going to be angels, right? That's the mystery of uh, resurrection, right? Jesus says in heaven, oh, you little of faith, right? We're not given to marriage. Nobody's given in marriage in heaven, but we're all going to be like angels. But you know what? That, to me, is still good enough, (laughs) Right? Yeah. I get to see my son. I get to see my wife and my father and my mother as angels. We're not going to relate in the same way, but we're still going to recognize each other. And we'll be angels and we'll have an eternity with God in his house. That is our hope, friends. That is our hope of resurrection. And it's too bad. It's too bad. That on Easter Sundays, when people who need that hope come to church and we're not able to give it to them. What does this mean for us? Well, when we are doing our evangelism, just know that whoever you talk to, no matter what kind of type of worldview, what type of messed up. Personal background, religious background, philosophical background they're coming from, no matter how staunch of an atheist they are, they are still human to the very core. They might be like Seneca, right? We don't ever know if Seneca came to know Christ. They might be like Seneca, who has all the answers for everything except for one. What does this mean for us personally? You know, there are times that. I stay up at night because I can't fall asleep because I'm worried. You know, whenever my wife visits New York and she has to drive two hours, I worry. I worry. And that keeps me up at night sometimes. You know, I suppose for all of us, we wrestle in our moments with the fear of death in our own different ways. This is a reminder for us to grasp again onto that hope of the resurrection that we have in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for giving us such a precious gift that, indeed, as you say, that frees us from the slavery of death and the one who holds the power of death over us as a fear, which is Satan. Thank you for freeing us, setting us free because of Christ. Lord, again, uh, in our moments of fear in our moments of sadness in our moments of weakness turn our hearts back onto you help us to 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 have encouragement and comfort from the fact that whether in life or in death our lives are in your hands our loved ones lives are in your hands and you will never let us go you will raise us on the last day and we will rejoice And sing, death, where is your sting? Lord, help us each day. Give us hope. Give us strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.